That's not necessarily the best sell for people to come. Well, I want to go because you're going to be <laughs> well, there. Thank you. I like Thanks, you. Thanks, Tim. We're friends. That's kind. Um, <laughs> hey, we're having men's retreat. McGuire's going to be there. Yeah, well, I'm kind of probably busy. Um, <laughs> good to be with you guys. As, um, I, my name's Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here at Mariners, and it is really, really good to be with you guys. And um, we are in the, the middle of a series called The Life of Adventure. It's been a very exciting series. If you, if, um, you haven't been with us in the past couple weeks and haven't heard any of the previous messages, I'd encourage you to download some of the messages from our podcast. You can kind of get a sense of, you know, kind of where we're going with this adventure of faith. That when we talk about faith, we're not talking about just sort of a, an acknowledgement of a few propositions that we go, those are probably true, and that's faith. We're talking about that faith has this dynamic and dangerous and mysterious kind of quality that actually sort of propels us to act and do things. And if you were here in week one, we talked about the idea that God is unpredictable. That if you were to look at God and sort of, you, our, our hope generally is that God operates in a very connect the dots kind of cause and effect linear format. But the truth is, as we look at scripture, we see a God who is operating in ways that are unpredictable and wild and sort of not according to our own agendas and things like that. And, and then in the second week, we talked about God being hidden. That while God is everywhere present, there, is, there are times where he reveals himself and there are times where he sort of doesn't always reveal his sort of manifest presence is what we call that. And we sort of saw the model in scripture that says, you know, when you experience God's hiddenness, that what people tended to do was just sort of exclaim, God, you're hidden and I need you to be around us. And we had people sort of stand and receive prayer who were experiencing the sort of felt absence of God. Last week we talked about courage. That in a life of adventure, an adventurous kind of faith, that there is always got to be an element of courage. And we talked about fear even as the, uh, the ancient Israelites are wandering around that they've sort of adopted fear almost as an idol. That it really, if we talk about idols or as sort of false gods, as things that actually direct the way that we live, that demand our allegiance, they really sort of had this idol kind of relationship with fear, and we kind of found ourselves sort of in the same idea. And so, like I said, if you want to catch up on some of those things, because in no one-week message can we, you know, capture all of what we want to talk about, but at least four weeks we get a little bit closer. So I'd encourage you to check that out uh, for sure. But it is really good to be with you guys today. I'm excited to talk today. And... Um, would you do this before we kind of get into the message? Would you just, um, would you pause with me? Would you um, join me in prayer just for a moment? So let's pray. Lord, we, um, as Ethan said earlier, we acknowledge that you are already here. We understand as much as we're able that you are everywhere. And God, would you cause us to anticipate your work in this next sort of, these next few moments? Jesus, amid all the things that are going on in our week, some of us, this weekend is a sort of cap to a really great week of things in which we've sort of seen and experienced joy and peace and harmony and all of the thing, completeness, the stuff that we would desire for our lives and for others of us, this has been the end of a week that has been really challenging or lonely or chaotic. And so God, would you meet both of us here in this place in a powerful way? Would you speak to us uniquely? So God, would we, would, just as we quiet our hearts for a second, would you begin to soften us that we might hear your voice? Lord Jesus, it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, I have to ask you guys a question. Yesterday was Cinco de Mayo, but um, what was... Friday, May the 4th, 
May the fourth, well, someone, someone, my brother, who said that over there? Say it louder. May the fourth, may the fourth be with you. I do not have a lisp, that is how it is pronounced. May the fourth be with you. It's the International Nerd Day, uh, of which I'm a participant and a card-carrying member. It's the Star International Star Wars Day, and it is the general sort of gathering of all the people who always and forever will not be ashamed that they have a secret allegiance to nerd things. And I see people, cla- last, I'm just actually surprised. I, I, I said this last night at our service, and I thought, no one's going to know this. I'm the only one. And there are, there are a proud few of us that are really excited about it. Now, it's not all nerds. I want to show you a picture of some really cool guys who are into this kind of stuff. Yep. <laughs> Nothing nerdy about that. <laughs> some of you are looking for my picture in there. I'm not in it. But I wish I was. Now, all these nerds, at some point in their life, have all dreamt about joining in the sort of Star Wars mythical, you know, universe. You can take that. That's, the people will not be able to pay attention to that. So up there. There you go. Um, and I want to give you a sense in very brief terms of, because some of you don't know. Some of you aren't nerdy enough to really fully understand and embrace the joy that comes with embracing Star Wars kind of lifestyle. And so I just want to... Um, give you a real quick version of the story, and this isn't going to cover all the nuance, so all all of you nerds are going to be like, you missed some stuff. (laughs) Lighten up, okay? Um, Basically, the Star Wars universe centers around an evil empire, which is modeled after, you know, Rome. So everything's kind of in Latin. There's all these people. There's an emperor and all that kind of stuff. And there's a small cadre of rebels who are determined to stop the advancing of the evil empire. And and at the center, the sort of the focal point of those rebels is a farm boy, this sort of blonde, you know, OP shorts-wearing kid from, you know, Bakersfield, is, is sort of at the center of this place, and he's sort of this dusty farm boy, and he gets swept up into this adventure, and ultimately the story sort of culminates with this boy um, and against the, all of the powers of the evil empire. And so it's like, if he wins, the good guys win, and if he doesn't win, the evil empire wins and the bad guys win. And this, this guy, his name is Luke. Thank you, fellow nerds. And all nerds, at some point in their life, if they have enjoyed any of the Star Wars, at some point in their life, now as they get a little older, they try to imagine themselves being a little cooler and trying to take on other characters, but at some point in their life, they all wanted to be Luke Skywalker. As if they could read themselves into the story. Now, it is my hope in the fourth week of this Life of Adventure series because Star Wars is the ultimate adventure and we are celebrating that most important of all historic days on May the 4th. But it's my, it's my intent to give you a taste of life as a Skywalker. You with me? The nerd said, well, yeah. Okay, great. Here we go. Why don't we do this? Um, if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 28. If you do not have one and you need to hold one because you are, you know, this is kind of like, I don't believe the Bible is the Bible unless I can hold it and flip the pages. I get that. If you need a Bible and want to hold one, these people will pass one out to you. They are very friendly. And if you need a Bible and don't have one at your house and you don't know where to buy one, you can steal it from us. I, will, I am fully endorsing the theft. Unless you have multiples of them, just take, just go ahead and leave that on your seat afterwards or, you know, give it to someone on your way out. Okay. Genesis chapter 28, I'll give you a little background as these Bibles are being passed out. This story centers around a guy named Jacob. Jacob is a guy who is the grandson of a guy named Abraham. If you grew up in the church, there is sort of a song we all sang if you grew up in the church. People are already nodding. Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them. 
So are you. Okay, right, so let's all praise the Lord. Now that's the song we all sing. Now, the, the, all of Jewish sort of life and history kind of runs through this guy Abraham. And that Abraham is Jacob's grandfather. In fact, the way God identifies himself throughout the Old Testament is, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, now, so Jacob's kind of a big deal. The other thing you have to know about Jacob, though, is he's not 100% awesome. It's not like he just has a string of awesome hits. He's amazing all the time. He's actually kind of got this kind of wild past. And he's kind of, in this point, we pick up the story, he's actually on the run. What you find a lot of his story is him running and fleeing from stuff. So here's where we are. Genesis 28, verse 10. Let's check it out. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. And when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. Okay, <laughs> I just think there's a couple of really interesting things here. First of all, he's traveling in the desert at night in the ancient Near East. This isn't like he has a flashlight and a headlamp, and he doesn't like he has a rifle or whatever else to sort of protect himself. There are no roads. There's no, this is not, this is just in the middle of the desert. There's probably not even a path there. And so he's wandering around in the desert. When it gets to be the dark, this is where you have to go. Well, I can't go any further. So the sun has set, and he lays down, and he finds an incredibly comfortable orthopedic pillow, a stone. <laughs> Imagine how tired you must be if you were looking at a stone and went, yeah, that looks really nice. Because that's what's happening right here. He's looking, he's like, wow, this looks like a good campsite. They have really wonderful stones. So he stops there to sleep. Now note what the Bible says about where he stopped. Beginning of verse 11. When he reached a certain place. Now, it's almost as if the Bible is going out of its way to describe this place as not that big of a deal. I mean, it doesn't say he stopped at a sacred place. He stopped at the place appointed to him by the Lord. It just says he stopped at a certain place. It's a rest stop. He's tired. They've got a porta potty and a broken RC Cola machine. That's all that's there. It's just nothing. It's tumbleweeds and dust. And there he is, and he stops. Now, I think what you, this is this is going to make sense in a little bit, but the indicator that there's nothing special about this place really matters. Verse 12. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it stood the Lord and he said, I'm the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and of the God of Isaac. Now, stop right here. In the ancient Near East, it was, not, it was common practice in, uh, in the ancient Near East for people to try to sleep at the sacred places where the gods were said to dwell. In other words, you, what people would do is they'd go to these temples or wherever it might be, these sacred places, and they would attempt to sleep there such that they would try to invoke a visitation from that god in the form of a vision or a dream. Now, what's happening here, remember that Jacob is at a certain place, an ordinary, mundane run-of-the-mill, you probably wouldn't even know the name of it kind of place. And evidently, the God being described here is unique in the ancient world because he's visiting and showing up, revealing himself in just an ordinary place, in a vision or a dream. Now then he says that he sees a, a stairway. Some of you have old translations of the Bible that would say a ladder. Or uh, um, the scholars think it probably was more like a ziggurat. You know, like some of you guys have been to the Federal Building in Aliso or whatever. It's like that, you know, the ziggurat. looks like that. Now some of you are like, wow, that it really is a special place. No, it's just a Federal Building, but that's a shape. Okay, here we go. You have angels kind of going back and forth along this stairway, which only really indicate the sort of holiness of the moment. And then God, as if he needed to, has to clarify his identity. Like, hey, by the way, 
I'm the God of Abraham and, and Isaac. So just so you know, here's, I'm the guy. All this stairway and the angels, God. Okay, that's what happens there. So verse 13, second part of verse 13 says this. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, God in this dream, this vision, remember Jacob's at this place, the ordinary place, the, this is, place is a totally nondescript, dust bowl of a place, and God shows up to him in this powerful way, reveals himself in this powerful way, and there is this encounter there where God starts talking about a promise he's going to make to him. And that promise is identical to what we see in the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 22. I'll just read, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you really quickly, on, it'll be on the screen. This is God speaking to Abraham. I, sure, I will surely bless you and make your descendants, descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Feels a little bit like a dust analogy. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on the earth will be blessed. Now what's happening here in this vision is that God is really clearly drawing this sort of line between himself and Abraham. And remember, Jacob is a guy who is fully aware that he is not the most obedient, solid, godly, quote-unquote, person in the ancient Near East. And yet, God confirms the promise that he made to his grandfather in the sort of preferred method of God's showing his faithfulness. In sort of three ways of land, seed, which is descendants, seed, and blessing. And he says, I'm going to return you to this place. You'll have descendants that are as numerous as the dust is on the earth, and they'll be everywhere, and all people will be blessed because of you. And there's this moment here, we begin to get this picture, especially at verse 15, where he says, I'm with you, and will watch over you, and will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to do. Now, this is kind of peculiar. Remember, Jacob's not an awesome example of how to live. And here he is at, at this unknown, unsacred, very mundane, very run-of-the-mill place. And God says, I will never leave you. God visits him in this place and says, I won't leave you. I'm going to be with you for the whole time. So God visits a certain place with a certain guy. Verse 16 and 17 says this. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now, if you have a Bible and it's yours, or if you plan on stealing the one that you're borrowing from us, I want you to underline, he was afraid. And he says, this place is awesome. In other translations, you have the phrase, how dreadful is this place? It's not like this place is awesome as if some of you last night in the celebration of Cinco de Mayo had a burrito and said, this burrito is awesome. It's an entirely different way of talking about awesome. It's as if that's sort of the older form of this word, meaning this is like a very big deal. There is something incredibly beyond me that's here, and so I acknowledge it. 
And we have to wonder about why is it awesome? Is it awesome because he had a dream? Because he saw the ziggurat and the angels going back and forth? Or, or is there something else about this that's actually dreadful? Because what you get in this picture here is that God at any moment in every place could sort of inhabit every circumstance. And maybe what makes this sort of awesome isn't just that God is there in this moment, that he showed up, but that God is every, could, he could be anywhere at any moment showing up, revealing himself. And maybe even further than that is that there's this picture in which God says, I will not leave you, which means every part of my life God is going to be also a part of. How dreadful, how scary, how awesome is that? I was um, talking, my kids recently asked me the, the, like one of the number one like, kid questions that you could be asked by your own kids. And they asked me the question, they said, Dad, where does the sky start? So where do you guys think? The sky starts in the sky. You get a free coffee out there, buddy. Okay, now, tell them I sent you. They'll give you a free one. Um, those of you who are new, coffee's all free. Um, where was I going? Oh, okay, where's the sky start? So I ask my kids, and I say, well, where do you guys think? And they go, well, it's probably above the roof. Probably. And then we have a friend. Some of you guys might know him. He's, he's a pastor on staff. His name's LV. And LV's like two or three inches taller than me. And I, I, I don't think of myself as like, Tall, but I think myself as tallish. But my kids imagine him, who's like that much taller than me, as enormous. They're like probably above LV. I'm like probably. <laughs> so somewhere, because LV is, you know, I'm like, you guys realize LV can fit in the doors in our house, right? He's not that tall. Yeah, but he's huge. Okay, so it's above LV and above the roof. What about the birds, you guys? Well, the birds are in the sky. What about planes? Also in the sky. I'm like, okay. So what? How high does it go? Well, it's below the moon. Also true, right? So somewhere between the top of my friend LV's head and the moon is the sky. And I said, well, what about us? Well, we're not in the sky. We're on the ground. The sky is up there, and we're here, right? Now, get where this is going. And I started talking to them. I said, you know, as I'm thinking about this, I'm like, this is a kind of a profound analogy here. Because what they're starting to wonder about is, where does the sky start and where does it end? And it's the same thing for us in a lot of ways we think about God. We're here, and God is there. He's, he's way out there, and occasionally what God will do is he'll sort of step out. For, he's got like binoculars, and he's looking down on the earth, and occasionally he'll sort of you know, jump out through the sky and show up and do something, help out, mess with us, whisper something in our ear, then jump back up. Maybe he you know, smites people, whatever that is. But they, and then he jumps back up into the way far up there between the roof of the house and the moon. But he doesn't live where we live, right? Now, evidently, this analogy is kind of like, um, you know, I'm not the first one to come up with it, which is generally true about most things. But I came across, I came across a pastor from the, um, gosh, this is, this is crazy. He was like, he's writing in the early 20th, early 20th century. And so he, he, wrote, he writes a book called, Where Does the Sky Begin?, and I just want to share with you his answer. It's amazing. Here, listen to what he says. I'm going to read part of it, and I'll show you the last paragraph on the screen. But listen, just listen to this. Now, I also have to tell you, because evidently people are more literate <laughs> in the early part of the 20th century than we are now, the words are a little bit, in the, you know, it's a little bit 
harder for us to understand, so I'm going to read it very slowly, and I want you to listen to it. Check this out. Where does the sky begin? I'm sure that our thought at once begins to mount upward. It begins somewhere above us as we conceive of it. Perhaps we've not tried to fix any better boundary for it, uh, but we do indeed apply the word skyscraper in a humorous way to our tall buildings. That's one of our exaggerations. (laughs) Not that funny. Uh -uh. We like to speak of these buildings so lofty that they pierce the sky. But if any proposition to transfer ourselves to the sky should be made to us, we should begin to wonder where we could find a ladder like Jacob's we could climb, or an airship or balloon by which we could ascend into that unknown region. What manner of people we should be if we lived in the sky, and we cannot quite imagine wings, of course, would be indispensable. Now I'll show you this last paragraph. What now is the simple, solid, scientific fact? It is that we are all dwellers in the sky. Stop right there. That means we are all sky walkers. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. I just... <laughs> okay, back. Come back. I know everyone had a little moment there. Uh, listen to the way he says this. We have lived in it all our lives and could not live anywhere else. The tallest ladder and the most buoyant airship would take us no nearer to it than we are at this moment. It is not the Matterhorn nor Mont Blanc alone that the sky kisses. The lowliest mound lies always in its loving embrace. What this guy is trying to explain here is that God is not so far away up in the sky that we are all actually in His presence at this very moment. Whether we are at, in the lowest cavern, the deepest sort of cave in the world, or we travel to the highest peak in, in all the world, we are still in the sky. And one way to imagine it is this, that we are right now breathing in not just air, but we are breathing in sky. And to look over the great distance over the whole wor- world, you're able to see things at distances, that the accumulation of sky shows itself to be blue. And that over great distances, you can see things like like sunsets, and you can see things like storms, and you can see things like clouds, and we can feel the wind moving, and yet we sometimes somehow still keep the sky so distant from ourselves, and yet we are all sky dwellers, sky walkers, every one of us. And what we learn in this story here is a picture about God being present, not just in some sort of unique places set apart, but that there is God present in every, and that God could show up, reveal himself, because he's already present in any moment. Not as an intervening God who sort of tears apart the sort of sky and jumps in and jumps back out, but that God is already here in our midst, with us, even in the mundane and in the ordinary, showing up in ordinary places, in mundane things, to ordinary people who are doing mundane things. Verse 18 says this. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called that place Bethel, or Bethel, though the city uh, used to be called Luz. Verse, Verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me 
and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I, I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God and the stone I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And, all, all, and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Now Jacob wakes up, says this is scary, dreadful, awesome. And then he takes his incredibly comfortable pillow <laughs> And places it into like this sort of rock formation, this sort of stack of rocks. And then he pours oil on it. In the ancient Near East, one of the ways that sort of contracts were effectuated, in other words, they were made to sort of become real or sort of solid or sealed, is that people would pour oil as a sort of an offering. This is the way an implied obligation was made. It was a sort of a peace offering. It was a friendship sort of statement. And it is to say, I belong to you, and you are part, you are part in this relationship. And so he pours out the oil on the place where he had his dream, the rock, this pillow. And he seems to be saying, I acknowledge all of what you've said, God. And it is a commemoration, not just that that place is sacred, but that God shows up in the most mundane places. To the people who are not necessarily, the, to take Monday and one step further, is to say profane. People who are not necessarily set apart perfectly for God. But that God would, would reveal himself in a powerful way. And then maybe for some of us in these places, as we sort of think about it, it's not just that God would show up to, in, in sort of to other people, revealing himself, because he's already present. But that God in some way would begin to sort of even reveal himself to those who were running and hiding. And Jacob has this sort of ironic moment where he names the place Bethel, which means house of God. And the, iron the irony is that any place could be Bethel. Any place could be the house of God because all of us are skywalkers. All of us are walking in God's midst in, the, in every moment, in every place, in everywhere. Some of us are locked in a belief that God has somehow always been distant and it's sort of either our fault or whatever else it might be that really that God intends for us to learn how to function so independently that we don't need him at all. And I, I just want to caution you against that kind of thinking at least as clearly as I can get it. That when you look at the people in the Bible who are dependent upon God, it isn't God's intention to gradually create less dependence on him. That throughout the story of their lives, they increase in their dependence upon God because the alternative is to create functional atheists. We might be a part of church community and stuff like that, but it's somehow or another we're trying to wean ourselves from ever having to need God. That isn't God's intention at all. Now others of us, oh I should say this too. If you're here in week two, we talked about the hiddenness of God. That God's sort of manifest presence isn't always known. And we had people stand and receive prayer for the, the sort of the, the loneliness of that experience. And, and I want to explain something to you. And I don't want to minimize any of the pain that comes from that, because clearly that's real pain. But I, I want to at least give you a picture. I think that this is, because the mandate in the Bible is to sort of call out to God to seek after him when we experience his sort of felt absence. And, and I, again, I don't want to make this small, but I want to give you a sense of what I think this is like. I, I play hide and seek with my kids. It's the most fun to play with is my three-year-old, because it's incredibly easy to hide. You know, my eight-year-old, I have to like, I have to figure out how to, you know, climb into the attic. You know, there's just no way, I mean, my, but my three-year-old is very fun. So here's what, what you do this. Will you put me on just on this camera right here just for a second? 
Right there, am I looking at it? Okay, good. So now, what, what, just pretend that this camera is my three-year-old. So what I'll do, the way that you hide from a three-year-old is just this. And we're, no, no, turn the camera, no, leave it right there, don't turn that one on. And I just kind of do one of these. And that's it, right? And he is like, where did he go? Now, the, the idea is with this little look right here, am I in the screen? Okay, good. Little look right here is that I can just sort of draw him out. He'll change his angle a little bit and see me, and then I'll just tuck back away. And then he'll kind of try to find me a little bit more. And there's a little bit more sort of like, at the moment you can sort of see my face, he's like, that! And I'm like, I jump back and disappear. And he comes out a little bit further. And there is this sort of, the way that it's fun for him eventually is I'll try to sneak up on him when he doesn't expect it anymore, and I'll try to tackle him and tickle him, and then he'll do it again, Dad. And the same exact thing will happen over and over again. It scares him equally every time. <laughs> but there's this part of which we sort of, like, there is this kind of, and I, again, I don't want to minimize it, but there's a part of which God is sort of drawing us out. And I realize this sounds like, again, it's a little simple, but the idea that God draws us out to sort of seek and to find him in those moments where we don't always experience his felt manifest presence in and among us. For others of us, as we sort of talk about the idea of sort of understanding God in these, in these terms, some of us aren't sure we'd recognize him if he revealed himself to us. I mean, if he just sort of showed up right now and sort of had his manifest sort of presence right among us, we're not sure we'd recognize him. There's a lot of ways to talk about this. One of the ways, I, I, I used to be a youth pastor. And when we would take high school kids to camp, inevitably, before the camp, before the camp started, and right after the camp, you would hear high school kids saying this kind of thing. You know, I just love camp because that's where God is. Yeah, I mean, yes, he's there. He's not, not there. I mean, he's there. But the whole, you're, you know, depending on how much of a student leader this person is, you kind of want to go, yeah, he's, he's also here where you're here, you know? Like, and so part of what we do as a camp is they go to camp, and we actually, and this is not to minimize the value of retreat because it actually makes that sort of more clear. God is actually present and wants to be involved in part of your life. And what we do at the camp is we try to get them to understand that God is not just only at camp. God lives elsewhere, too, that he is everywhere. And that every moment is one of those moments that God might reveal himself and show up in a powerful way. And I, I was, I, and I, what we try to do a lot of times when I was a high school pastor was I was just trying to create readiness, attentiveness. Yesterday, my son had his, his first playoff game for his baseball team. And um, the, he, they put it, he plays left field, and he's like, you know, he bats 10th in the lineup of 11 guys. You just give you an idea of kind of where he is in the team. And, and, he, and the bulk of the effort for him in playing left field at eight-year-old baseball is, first of all, one out of every 47 hits gets past the shortstop and into left field. So the whole time, all, and I'm, basically it's a lie. I'm like, buddy, a ball can be hit to you any moment. And he looks at me like, Dad, we're in the 17th game of the season. Two balls have come out here, you know, and I'm like, dude, you just don't know. And so I'm watching him this last game, and his, his buddy is, in the, is on the team that's warming up for the game after ours, and he's taking some BP over here, and they're doing some warm-up and stuff like that, you know, batting practice. And so I just watched my son doing this right here. He's in left field looking at his friend like this, and it's like, bad Dylan, you know, coach is yelling at him. What? I was like, I'm ready, you know, and then, so sure enough, here comes 
some little eight-year-old manages to get a hold of a ball, and it just starts, it just screams out of the infield in the air. You know, it's like, I can hear the music of the natural going on, ba-ba, bum ba bum ba you know, and I, you know, and I'm, I look over at my son, everything's in slow motion, the parents are like, bah, you know, like, dude, and he's like, all right, I got it, and, he, and everyone's yelling at him, and he starts running forward to the ball, and I'm like, here it comes, please, please, dear Lord, please, God, let him catch it. And, you know, just he needs this so bad confidence. I need it because I'm insecure. I need my son to succeed. Uh, and and he, the ball, he lands in his glove. He catches it. And it was the end of the inning. It was like, oh, the team dogpiles him. It was like the greatest moment. Tears, you know, people, or the parade started right then. I forget exactly how it went. But there, just, it was just this massive sort of celebration. And the whole thing was, you just don't know. There is this huge amount of, uh, I mean, it's the importance of being in his position is simply to be attentive in case something does happen. To put yourself in a position to be ready. In essence, what we get from this story is that in the ordinary, in that certain place to certain mundane people who do certain mundane things in their ordinary lives is that at any moment, God might call us to do something or to be available for something. I have, um, I know of a person, and this person is the biggest hero I've ever met. I mean, I, I have a huge amount of respect for this person. Where they say, before they get on an airplane, they travel a lot, and they say, before they get on an airplane, they literally pray that God would bring to them someone that they could talk to about him. And I just think, I never do that. I'm never going to do that. And I know you're thinking, you're a pastor. Isn't every moment like that for you? Maybe it should be. Maybe that's why I'm using this example. But I, I, I despise that. I, I'm like, give me a book. I will give the international sign of I do not want to talk to you. These are earphones. And I will, I, I don't have, I'm not nearsighted, but I will hold the book like this. And I will just, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't see you there. You know, like I just, I, every symbol I can give to people that I don't want to be your friend, I give them. And I know this is confession, okay? But this person is saying, I believe God is already at work. And that the moment when I sit down in the plane is a holy moment. It is a sacred moment because it's just already, it's mundane. It's just a regular travel thing. But it's also sacred. It's also holy because of God, what God might do in that space. I think for a lot of us, especially as a pastor, I get a lot of questions sometimes about how do you know God's voice? How do you, how do you know when God's actually talking to you? How do you hear that? And the answer is I don't have, I don't have a like, I've never had a ziggurat dream. <laughs> you know, I've never had that happen. I've never used a rock for a pillow. And I've never had that. Kind of, I don't have an audible voice kind of encounter with God. I don't get in my car and tune it in between the radio stations. Do you guys hear that? That's God. You know, I don't have that kind of moment. But I would tell you this. And this is, I'm going to tell you something that will shock you. So be prepared to be shocked, Skywalkers. There is a way that God's voice has been given to us. Get ready for the shocker. It is in the Bible. So here is the crazy action step for this week. Read it. <laughs> and people will say, well, it's such a hard, it's so hard to understand, it's so hard to, I get it. I, I totally, under, I, I know where you're coming from. And I would say there are, there's a lot of ways to sort of, you know, deal with the Bible. And I just want to encourage you this, to start Probably in, in the, in probably in the book of Matthew, just start in the New Testament and begin to read a picture of who Jesus is because Jesus is the answer to the question, what is God like? 
And to look at his life is to get this picture of what God is actually about and begin to understand his voice for your life. Because there are, as we talked about last week, a lot of voices that sound very godly and that speak to us all the time. And yet we have a difficult time, a lot of times we get the question, how do I know whether it's my voice or God's voice? And the answer really simply is, does it sound like, it's, does it sound like the Bible sounds? I know you're like, that's so stupid. And I just, I, I get it. There, you wish there was something more elaborate or a trick or an acronym or something. It, just read it. That's it. And it, what's difficult for us is when we read the Bible, for those of us who have been in church for a long time, we have an understanding about reading things that are sort of comfortable or familiar to us. God being a fortress or a shield or sort of some warm and tender story about shepherds or, you know, whatever. But there's also some stuff about God that's really confusing and difficult. And that's stuff we have to read also. Because it doesn't always come to us when we, read God, when we hear God's voice. It's not always, hey, guess what? Massive blessing upon you and your descendants and the land that you're going to get. The clearest picture of God's voice tends to be around, you are loved. You are God's child. And there are some things in your life that are not going to sort of be true, that are not true to your identity as belonging to me. And we're going to have to deal with those things. And those things aren't comfortable. Um, when uh, coin collectors are looking to try and find ways to sort of identify the, the actual, the sort of authentic piece of, of coin that's sort of supposed to be traded or, you know, valued or whatever, and they're trying to war against counterfeit, you know, coins, they say that the most, the most effective way to do this is not to study all the possible fakes, but to look the most and memorize most clearly the authentic version. Here's actually... Uh, um, uh, a quote from a webpage, the fundamentals of, what is the fundamentals of counterfeit? Will you show that? It's easier and quicker to look for genuine diagnostics than it is to identify every counterfeit diagnostic. In other words, there are a lot of voices that you will hear, and the voice you need to be most attuned to, to is the one that comes from the Bible. This is God's word to us. With me? Even if it's not always comfortable. Today what I want to do is we're going to take communion. And what I want you to do is this. So right now, as we kind of Acknowledge that God is already present in this moment. Would you close your eyes? If you need to sort of exhale again, to sort of refocus, to dial back in, please do so. For a moment, would you consider, just to stay with the analogy, that you are breathing in sky. That we are not merely breathing in air, that we are breathing in the sky, and that God is already at work here, in and among us. And when we're looking to sort of understand and to hear God's voice, the Bible gives us a picture of Jesus and refers to him as the Word. That the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that all things were created from him, this Word. The book of Ephesians tells us that there is one body and one spirit. Paul says, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul writes again in Colossians about how Jesus is holding everything together, that all existence owes itself to Jesus. Lord, we acknowledge that you are at work 
in certain places with certain people. And Jesus, that you came to rescue those people, to give to them a life of freedom and of joy and of hope. Jesus, we acknowledge that you are present right now. And through the symbols of the bread and of the juice, God, we acknowledge your sacrifice on the cross which gives to us a peace and a victory and a hope. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body which is broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup and after he had given thanks, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you eat this bread or you drink this cup, you do so in remembrance of me. And so Jesus, we remember you, the word who has come to be with us, among us, to reveal yourself to us. And so Jesus, we say thank you. And we confess the parts of our life that need to be brought to you because we trust you. As we take communion, we remember you, Jesus. We breathe in the sky. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Here's what we'll do. Why don't you just come forward. You dip the, the bread into the cup. And you can, however you want. If you want to t- eat it right then, if you want to take it back to your seat and hold it. The only thing is just don't leave. Don't, especially there's, there's some stations behind you. Don't just, you know, kind of walk to your car with it. Stay in here in the space. I also want to tell you, you don't need to drink. So if you grew up in another tradition, you don't need to drink the cup. We've had that happen before. So just... Just dip the bread in there. You know, you don't need to take a sip. And the symbol will still mean, still matters. Um, But why don't we do that right now as a community? That this is the act of us together remembering and understanding the sacrifice of Jesus for us.